This podcast is produced by Vach, an Amsterdam organization exploring the overlap between art, technology, and community in order to create positive social change and make the way that we live more open, fair, and inclusive. Welcome back to Seed Memory, a podcast where we explore the overlap between heritage and the natural world. In our first two episodes, we've been exploring people and organizations related to heritage, ecology, or both. We've heard from Vergès Urbain about bringing together skill sharing and greener cities, and we've heard from de Coville about how the natural wisdom of ecosystems can guide our sustainability efforts. We heard from Tamara Van Kessel about just how wide our definition of heritage can become, and we heard from Stephen High about how you can manage heritage in an inclusive and representative way. We finished on a note from Stephen about the importance of emotions in the communities associated with heritage. But no, emotions are huge. Like, history is personal, and history inhabits each of us. And in this episode, we want to look more closely at these emotions. Emotions should really, in my opinion at least, be central to any discussion of heritage and the way that we choose to let the past exist or live in our present. Heritage is important to people because it in some way is representative of their identity and they feel emotions related to the memories associated with that identity. But as we often find with heritage, emotions are a complex thing and there can be clashes between the way one person might feel about an item of heritage compared to another. The views of an individual might not reflect the views of the collective they are considered part of, but it might not necessarily be easy to express these subtle differences. The complexity of emotional response to heritage in its myriad forms has long been the subject of debate and study by those within the heritage profession. Remember, heritage is not just about buildings, monuments, museums. It's about practices, behaviors, commonality between different people. And it's about the emotions that all of these different heritages create in the individual. I spoke with someone who has been working on a new approach to understanding these emotions, which also works in tandem with our discussions of heritage and seed memory, as we try to move from the idea of heritage as static and fixed to a heritage conception which is fluid and intersectional. I'm Hester Dibitz. I'm professor at the Rheinwart Academy, professor in cultural heritage. Apart from that, I'm the course director, the director of the master at the Rheinwart Academy. It's a master in applied museum and heritage studies. Hester has been working together with her colleague Marlous Willemsen at Imagine IC, a museum and cultural institute in Amsterdam, working on amplifying the unheard voices in society. Their discussions led to the creation of a concept enabling a different way to communicate the complexities surrounding the things we keep with us in the present. This concept is called emotion networking. Emotion networking is it's both an idea and a method. When you look at how heritage items come about and how they are considered as heritage, as being heritage or claimed as heritage, that is often in interaction with other people who might be not so fond of these uh, items. So it's in this fight or often or in interaction between people and things and places and different settings and all these different factors and actors that are involved in the making of heritage that heritage comes about. And we were looking for a way of how to visualize these dynamics and also visualize the interactions 
the networks that that make heritage, starting from the idea that heritage always has to do with people's emotions and feelings and ideas and convictions and values. One of the key characteristics in this idea of emotion networking is that we invite people for an exercise, deliberately people with different opinions and different positions in a debate, and we invite them to look at themselves and to look at the other actors and to sort of together visualize the interaction. And I think that the sort of also the act of visualizing this interaction and the different position at the end, the simple idea of making a mind map together of what is happening, that is one of the key things. And I think it's also one of the strong points in this whole idea. And, and the mind mapping can be done physically. So standing in a, in a room where you move or on a on a white sheet of paper and and moving with a pencil and and lines and drawing a network. If you invite people to um, for a conversation about their emotions and feelings towards an item of heritage, people on the one hand might stick to their position, but on the other hand might sort of shift position in conversation, in interaction, because people change their opinions and the feelings might change because they see that other people take a different position. So the emotions that people experience when coming into contact with a heritage item, whether intangible or tangible, ubiquitous or obscure, are at the forefront of emotion networking. It's a way to visualize the different things that people feel when coming into contact with an item of heritage, to help encourage dialogue between different groups. Hester explained that one of the most obvious examples in the Netherlands is the emotions surrounding Zwartpiet, or Blackpiet, a Dutch tradition where one of St. Nicholas's helpers is portrayed as an illiterate and cartoonish black man, depicted by white men in blackface. This is a tradition with a long history and conflicting opinions on both sides, and the aim of emotion networking is to bring these emotions, like a historicized anger and pain, to the awareness of those who don't necessarily experience them firsthand. It's the same kind of pain, anger, and historical context that fueled another contemporary example, which came the day before our interview in my hometown of Bristol, where the statue of Edward Colston, a 17th century slaver and investor, was torn down at a Black Lives Matter demonstration. I think this is a terrific example of how the tangible and the intangible and emotions and ideals and visions, it's, it's a mixture of, of everything. And, and it sort of the, the different voices are there, even if not everybody is physically there, but it's, it's around and um, it's an amazing example. You may have heard about this, either directly watching the rather glorious videos of Colston's statue being thrown into the docks or in the aftermath in which discussions of the validity of statues who have contributed to colonialism and racism have proliferated across mainstream and social media. Imagine we'd had and utilised something like emotion networking earlier, which could have illustrated to different parties and individuals how an item of heritage had affected the reality of living their day-to-day -day life and encouraged healthier communication. 
the the idea of emotion networking is a way of dealing with conflict and the complexities of what heritage is and the complexities of everyday life that you can investigate everyday life also as a citizen. So it can help citizens to deal with conflict. It can help politicians, policymakers, not only museum and heritage professionals, but also school teachers, children, grown-ups, old people, young people, everybody. It, it helps to sort of, okay, let's take a step back, step in and out of my own bubble and look at what is happening here and what is the symbolic power of this statue or of this building, of this dish, of this habit. It's about everyday culture and things we like or don't like and things we want to talk about or sometimes we don't want to talk about. And then it's taking a step back also in that sense that why do we sort of take that much or we, some people, take that much effort to call it heritage. But at the end of the day, it's about change and, and culture and how we deal with the world around us in an interactive setting and how, what is our own role as an individual in making culture, even also with changes in the environment and um, in the world where we live. So immersion networking is a physical method of mapping out in a visual way the emotions that are connected between heritage items and the people that experience them. This articulates these emotions and makes it possible for people to understand emotions that are different to those that they feel. What emotion networking can do then is open up the way that we understand things as important to us. It's about understanding and keeping up with change and moving beyond the academic context of heritage. So when we think of this new normal, which includes statues being torn down and the complex emotions that are involved in events like that being taken into account, the way we begin to think of heritage begins to shift to something that includes the things that occupy the thoughts of the individual as they go about their life. Their memories, their hopes, their fears, their sense and love of a place, their sense of self. This new normal we keep hearing about could look very different. In fact, it's already started. With the Colston statue in Bristol, the catalyst for many other statues being taken down all over the world, a testament to the power of how heritage and emotions are intertwined. If we want to see this shift in heritage happen, we need to think clearly about what emotions we do or can experience and what they relate to. Heritage almost always relates to the emotions we feel around what Hester called a heritage item, right? So. What if we included the natural world, the community with which we are deeply connected, as one of these heritage items? What kind of emotions might come up in the process of emotion networking? The emotions we experience in relation to ecological life are not always easy to articulate or express. But thankfully, there are people who work on giving us the vocabulary for the emotions we feel as we inhabit life and, as Hester said, deal with the world around us. One such person is the author of a book called Earth Emotions, New Words for a New World, which specifically aims to put a name on the emotions we feel in relation to the natural world. My name is Glenn Albrecht. I'm an environmental philosopher. I hold a PhD in philosophy. 
I'm a retired academic and my last position as an academic was as Professor of Sustainability at Murdoch University in Perth in Western Australia. I now am a free thinker residing on Wallaby Farm at Duns Creek in New South Wales, Australia. Glenn has spent a lifetime working with, exploring, caring for and conserving the natural world, but is perhaps most well known for his work exploring the emotional responses of Australian Aborigines upon the devastation of their heritage, both material and spiritual, by enormous state-sanctioned mining projects. His research in this area led to the coining of various new so-called Earth emotions. Some examples include biophilia, relating to the love of all life forms, and solophilia, the commitment to political action protecting beloved places of home, from destructive forces seeking to destroy that home. The most well-known of Glenn's new words, however, and one that has gone far beyond the context of his original case study, is solastalgia, derived from the word solace, that one might feel when at home, desolation, that could be felt at seeing that home destroyed, and the alga from nostalgia, from the Greek root meaning the pain of the heart the melancholy felt when missing a beloved home environment. I work in what I now call the psychotoratic or psyche-earth relationships, the connections between our psyche and the state of the earth, both positive and negative. And this quest of mine to understand the psychotoratic started with the concept of solastalgia in 2003. The concept of solastalgia was developed because I felt the need and perceived uh, in the the lives of people who were living adjacent to black coal mines in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales, not far from where I lived, uh, a form of distress that hadn't uh, previously been accounted for in the English language. It was easy to see that these people were distressed, but distress has a thousand different contexts. The form of distress that I was examining was tied to the state of the biophysical environment. The people I were uh, corresponding with and meeting were still at home and their home environment was deteriorating around them. Could even say that their home environment was leaving them rather than them leaving their home environment. So as a result, I could see the need for a concept that could fill that space, which describes a form of homesickness that people have when they're still at home. And that's the derivation of solastalgia. The loss of solace from your loved home environment is a cause of the melancholia, the distress, the grief, the pain that you feel when your loved home environment is changing in ways that you find undesirable and that you're powerless to do anything about it. Solastalgia, along with other earth emotions like those mentioned, biophilia and solophilia, are emotions that we need to consider when we choose what comes from our past with us into our future. If our emotion networking technique that Hester laid out before takes into account these kinds of emotions, then what we allow to remain as our heritage will instantly be closer to the natural world. Ecology will begin to become part of our thinking around what heritage is in a way that hasn't previously been achieved. In Glenn's vision, this connection, this ascendancy of what he calls the terranasan or positive, life-giving earth emotions over what he calls the terapthoric, or negative, destructive earth emotions, is the basis for a transition to an envisaged new world, where human life exists within its means and as part of the natural world. This imagined future is called the Symbiocene, a counter to the idea of the Anthropocene, the period in which human life and activity is considered the greatest driver to environmental change.
if solastalgia is caused by social, cultural and political policy, then it can be alleviated or removed by addressing the the political and policy framework that caused that problem in the first place. So the concept of solophilia was my political answer to the problem of solastalgia. And as the decades have passed, I've realised that solophilia, although it remains an important part of my psychoterratic typology, the, 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 the range of new words that we need to address these problems, it wasn't doing what I hoped it would do, which was to bring about a, a non-left-right political response to the issues that we were confronting. So the, the concept of the symbiocene arose about 2011 in order to provide a more systematic context in which positive earth emotions could be created and maintained. And the symbiocene is based itself on the idea of symbiotic connections to the rest of life, that humanity has severed those connections substantially during the Anthropocene and that we need to have a vision of a new era where we reconnect symbiotically with the rest of life. That is, after all, how humans evolved in the first place. We can choose to continue with the Anthropocene if we want to, but who wants to choose death, desolation, destruction, climate catastrophe over the possibility of continued life within a, a different era, one that I've called the symbiocene? Some, but not all, of the principles of this symbiocene are full and benign recyclability and biodegradability of all inputs and outputs, safe and socially just forms of clean, renewable energy, full and harmonious integration of human systems with biogeochemical systems at all scales, and perhaps most importantly, the symbiocene demands that all species, great and small, have their life interests and kinship taken into account. Given the similarity here to the role of recognising the life interests and kinship in heritage discussions, I also asked Glenn what kind of a role heritage could have in this symbiotic vision, especially in the context of our attempt to expand the parameters of what heritage is. In the Anthropocene, the conventional idea of heritage often is, uh, appears as bricks and mortar, as in museums and stately homes that must be preserved. I do see it having an educative role. It should be telling us how we did things in the past, why they were part of the Anthropocene eco side and why we need to transition or move away from them as rapidly as possible. Uh, as long as we get what it is that we're talking about right, then I, I see heritage, human heritage and, and culture as deeply embedded within uh, what I would call a proto-symbiocene, that the good earth emotions that go with productive, healthy relationships to the rest of life and the planet are part of our evolutionary experience. There are places in Australia where the Aboriginal occupation goes back at least 80,000 years and possibly longer. So we're talking about human heritage and what you know is normally called uh, world heritage nowadays. In, in that context, uh, memories and emotional connection as heritage are certainly things that I wish to preserve. They're the very things that I see as important to reconstruct, to repair, to usher in this new era uh, I've called the symbiocene, because in the Anthropocene, what we're seeing is the destruction of all forms of heritage. I describe it as emotional extinction or muicide. It's a new term that I've developed in the last few months. So we're losing 
our emotional connection to the rest of life at the same time as we're losing every other aspect of heritage, both built, natural and cultural. Evidently, this vision of the future not only has space for heritage, but indeed makes it crucial in helping educate us on what from our past we do or don't want to bring with us. It also represents a deep-set, biophilic and cooperative relationship with the natural world. In a way, this reimagining of heritage around emotions related to the ecological mirrors the intangible heritage of Glenn's original case study, the Australian Aboriginal population. The ancient Aborigines have an intangible heritage practice known as dreaming, with a capital D. In these dreams, the Aboriginal people, who cherish their relationship with the Earth, conceptualise the natural world on a scale from its largest to its absolute smallest iterations, within the context of a time scale far beyond that of a human lifespan, as they remember their place in the community of the natural world for over 80,000 years. The life cycles, the birth, death and rebirth of all of the natural world, all of these are part of what is remembered and dreamed of. Maybe these rememberings of ecological community are what you could call seed memory. But what about the culture you might be listening in, or indeed the urban industrialised context in which this podcast was made? How is it possible to bring the principles of the symbiocene into our lives? Some previous guests on this show, in the form of Vergez Urbain and de Covel, have already touched upon the answer, and it's something we've been hinting at all along, which is to emphasise the small scale and the local, the community projects around which identities are formed. From my very earliest days as a thinker and, uh, and as a writer, I've been a person who's championed the idea of the local and the regional. If you can get it right at the local level and everyone else is doing the same, it's going to get things right at the global level. And that's how the world has evolved. It hasn't evolved as some kind of homogeneous mass of life in every particular part of the world, in every different soil type, in every different microclimate, life has evolved to fit those particular spaces or what the biologists call niches. The idea that we could somehow bulldoze all of that and create one homogeneous economic and political and cultural system that covers the whole earth is absurd. And not only is it absurd, it's incredibly dangerous. And so as a result, I've, I've always strongly supported the local delivering at local and regional level exactly what is fine-tuned to the necessities of place. And so, I mean, even in my own earliest days of coming to Newcastle, I was involved in the creation of a wetland centre and the, the rehabilitation of what was a garbage dump into a fully-fledged bird sanctuary and environmental education centre. I spent 10 years of my life working as a volunteer with like-minded people to create that place, and it's still there. So it's mm. core to my philosophical being that, uh, you build from the local and regional to the continental and then to the global. All volition and will happens at the local level, and it happens through the microcosmos, uh, gut bacteria, all the way through to the actions of large, complex organisms such as humans and elephants. The way that the life found in a specific location reflects the specific demands and conditions of the local biophysical environment mirrors the way that people's heritage reflects the specific cultural context of their lives and those of their community. 
It's the same reason that people working in the industrial context find it creates an industrial sensibility which completely permeates their sense of place. It's why children will grow up remembering the lessons they learned from the elders of Verges Urbain on the streets of Paris about how to grow raspberry bushes. These local community projects are what give people a love of a place that feels like home, what makes people feel that where they are from is what constitutes part of their heritage. They help people feel that they belong. The examples from this podcast show us that thinking of heritage through these emotions wrapped in the specific local context will allow us to encourage a fairer and more inclusive discussion of heritage. De Covell and Stephen High have shown us the importance of this in our industrial heritage examples, making explicit the need to consider both our environmental and social legacies. The idea of emotion networking, which Hester Dibbitz helped formulate, helps us better understand the emotions underpinning heritage and why emotions are important in any discussion of heritage, as many across the world began to understand when witnessing the emotion that motivated the tearing down of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol. And thanks to Glenn Albrecht, we can also consider the emotions related to the natural world as part of that process of emotion networking. The networks of emotions surrounding heritage don't only relate to heritage itself though, they also mirror how we as humans exist within our own network, both as nodes of locality in wider society and in the network of the ecosystem of living beings that exist on the earth. We can incorporate these emotions, especially biophilia, that love of all life, into our understanding of society, bringing the natural world itself together with our heritage, which generates our feelings of community and belonging. I suspect we will discover this to be a great fit. This process can be replicable across different locations and cultures, but will always be rooted in the emotional identity of the local context, just as the natural world adapts to the environmental conditions of a specific place. Doing this will bring our understanding of ourselves and the natural world together, which will help instigate the psychological societal shift that's necessary to face, head-on, the social and environmental challenges that are in front of us. This has been Seed Memory, with me, Harry Reddick. Huge thanks must go to Hester Dibbitz and Glenn Albrecht, who both joined me on Skype for being the emotional and creative drivers behind this episode. While I must also thank Dick, Che, Gijs, Pam, Anna, Nana, Richard, and everyone else at Bach, who once again helped make this podcast possible after it had been a pile of incoherent ideas. Additional thanks go to Clank Bailed, one of my favourite users from freesound.org, as well as another user mysteriously titled Kangaroo Vindaloo. Thanks too to Ruby Ellis, who let me use the audio from her video of the Edward Colston statue being torn down in Bristol. 
And of course, final thanks go to Anton Pearson, who provided our introduction music, and Lewis Shields, who provided many beautiful sounds, including these, that will play us out. Once again, thanks for listening.